Christ, speak to us through your word this morning, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. There's some technical difficulty. We will close with this song. Okay. So, um, again, we can always blame Frank, because that's what we do here. Because it's America, we have to blame somebody, right? Well, there's an edited version of that, because that song is nine minutes long, and I don't think you want to sing it nine minutes long. And so we edited it down, and it, there was just a technical problem. So, anyways, we'll close with it. So, very good. All right, get your Bibles out. Turn to Genesis chapter 8 this morning. We're going to talk about, continue to talk about the origins of Really of, of everything. And we pick up with our eight favorite people. And by the way, we all did, had descended from Adam and Eve, right? Then we've all descended from eight other people. Everyone was destroyed except for Noah and his wife and his sons and his sons' wives. We've all descended from those eight people. So those eight people are in an ark floating. That's where we left them off last week. So let's pick it up, and we're going to talk about something I think you may appreciate called the second earth. Now, what do I mean by that? Well, what was the first earth? It was the original creation, okay? And we talked about it with a very different climate um, a different oceans and lands and so on and so forth. The second earth, Psalm 104, I think I put this verse up here, uh, talks about this. Now take a moment and look at this. It says, you covered it, it meaning the planet, with the deep. The deep always refers to what? Water. As with a garment. The waters were standing above the mountains. So obviously this is... The psalmist referring to the flood, okay? So I don't know how many, what, thousands of years later, this is still being talked about. So it's commonly known there was a worldwide flood of judgment. At your rebuke, they fled. What fled? The waters, okay? At the sound of your thunder, they hurried away. And we'll talk about that today. Look what else happens. The mountains rose. The valleys sank down to the place you established for them. So now we get started, get a time frame here. So just like during the days of creation, God is reforming the planet. And he's using water. What happened in the second day of creation? He separated the water. Remember that? and create the universe and heavens and everything. There's water above and water below. And the earth was still covered in water, and he was forming the planet in the, during the second day of creation in the successive days. So God is busy. So there's Noah and his seven family members. They are floating safely on the surface of the water. But God is busy reshaping the planet in the water. This is what Psalm 104, guess what? It tells us that, and so does science. Let me explain to you. Did you know that mountain ranges are made up of igneous or volcanic rock? 
but it's covered with sedimentary rock. Did you know that? Yeah. So you dig through the initial crust of the, of the mountain, eventually you're going to get to volcanic or igneous rock. And there's an explanation for that that's very simple to understand. The great flood that we're reading about, it comes upon a relatively flat planet. Remember, we didn't think there were a lot of mountains. Remember the, the Pangaea? Remember that picture of that one big supercontinent? And I showed you after the flood, the, the map of the world that we know, and you can see how they kind of fit together. Well, we believe that it was also, uh, according to the Bible, uh, relatively flat. There were some mountains and hills, but it wasn't like what we see today. And so this flood of water comes on a relatively flat planet. The mountains aren't that high, and the ocean basins aren't that deep. So the earth is completely submerged from the water, and where's the water coming from? Well, up from the bowels of the earth, the foundations of the earth, it says, fountains of the deep, and there's torrential rain pouring down from the heavens above. Now, what does this cause? Well, it causes massive mudslides, large movements of sediment, and this movement of sediment creates, when it dries, sedimentary rock. And geological science tells us that sedimentary rock, it's not formed by generations of rock forming on top of each other over millions of years. That, of course, is what we talked about last week. What is that called? Uniformitarianism. Give yourself enough time, eventually there's going to be sediment of rock. And geological science says, no, 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 it doesn't happen that way. Mount St. Helens proved that again. There is sedimentary rock over what? Land. And when was that formed? May 18th, 1980. Okay? Massive, catastrophic water flowing from that explosion, that volcanic eruption. Instead, we know that this sedimentary rock is formed during a cataclysmic event by a tremendous force of water moving and pushing layers on top of layers. You've seen it. Again, I say it's like making a cake in a sense, a layered cake. You have one layer. Like I said, this is the only cake that you should make ever. Chocolate. You got the sponge cake, or the, you know, the flour, whatever, the yellow cake. Chocolate. You can put a little caramel on there. Then another layer. Then chocolate, then layer, and chocolate, and chocolate icing. You put any white or vanilla icing on it, you're destined to destruction. Okay? But there's layers, right? You see, and so you can see it in sedimentary rock. Look at the Grand Canyon, you'll see these layers there. Okay? That's formed from water coming and pushing stuff over and over and over on top of it. And it's a cataclysmic event, again, caused by a tremendous force of water moving and pushing layers on top of layers. And so what happened in the Great Flood was water was transporting and depositing materials in massive layers all over the planet. And that's what happened, folks, in the first part of the flood. That's just the first part of the flood. And we'll get into that a little bit later. Now, in the latter half of the flood, Psalm 104 tells us, God begins to push the mountains up with volcanic movement. And since the planet is now covered in sediment, and within that sediment, by the way, what's getting buried? 
the bones of everything that had the breath of life in them. And they end up becoming marine fossils. So there's going to be, by the way, it wasn't just everything that had life in terms of, we know that yes, the beasts, the cattle, the birds, humans, they all perished and they're swept up, okay? Some of them, were, we'll say, were probably floated in the water. Some of them were caught and we can find their remains. But also caught in that flood of mudslides were fish, okay? Marine life. And so these mountains are being pushed up, and in that sediment are also marine fossils, and they're now forced up with the mountains. And this is why, remember last week, we find marine fossils at the tops of mountain ranges. That's why we find all that stuff there. And so while God is thrusting mountains upward using volcanic eruptions, some of the volcanoes, and they're in the Pacific Basin, by the way, um, some of them are exploding inwardly. And they're collapsing under themselves, and they're creating these great valleys. Okay? The great ocean basins. And so water begins to disappear as it rolls down the side, side to the mountain hills, and it collects in lakes and rivers and dumping into the lowest parts, which are now these ocean basins that are newly created. So the earth that appeared after the flood, the only earth that we know was very different than the one before the flood. We have these massive high mountains of 30,000 feet, and of course that's what? Mount Everest. Ocean basins that go as deep as 35,000 feet. That's what's our world. Now, as we read through Genesis 8 this morning, pay close attention to how it aligns with, with Psalm 104, 6 8. Let's read through it now. Genesis chapter 8. We'll get to this entire chapter this morning. It says, But God remembered Noah and all the beasts and all the cattle that were with him in the ark. And God caused a wind to pass over the earth, and the water subsided. Does that sound familiar? That's Psalm 104 up there. You see it? Also, the fountains of the deep and the floodgates of the sky were closed, and the rain from the sky was restrained. And the water receded steadily from the earth. At the end of 150 days, the water decreased. Now, that's Psalm 104, that's verse 7. Now, what's happening after 150 days? Verse 8. The ark is resting on Mount Ararat, as we're going to find out. God is busy pushing up these mountains, doing all this work. Okay? And they're clueless, because where are they? In an ark floating on top of the water safely. Verse 4, in the seventh month, in the seventeenth day of the month, the ark rested upon the mountains of Ararat. The water decreased steadily until the tenth month. In the tenth month, on the first day of the month, the tops of the mountains became visible. Then it came about at the end of forty days that Noah opened the window of the ark which he had made, and he sent out a raven. And it flew here and there until the water was dried up from the earth. Then he sent out a dove from him to see if the water was abated from the face of the land. But the dove found no resting place for the sole of her foot. So she returned to him into the ark, for the water was on the surface of all the earth. Then he put out his hand and took her and brought her into the ark to himself. 
So he waited yet another seven days, and again he sent out the dove from the ark. The dove came to him toward evening, and behold, in her beak was a freshly picked olive leaf. So Noah knew that the water was abated from the earth. Then he waited yet another seven days and sent out the dove, but she did not return to him again. Now it came about in the 601st year, in the first month, on the first of the month, the water was dried up from the earth. Then Noah removed the covering of the ark and looked, and behold, the surface of the ground was dried up. In the second month, on the 27th day of the month, the earth was dry. Then God spoke to Noah, saying, Go out of the ark, you and your wife and your sons and your sons' wives with you. Bring out with you every living thing of all flesh that is with you, birds and animals and every creeping thing that creeps on the earth, that they may breed abundantly on the earth and be fruitful and multiply on the earth. So Noah went out, and his sons and his wife and his sons' wives with him. Every beast, every creeping thing, and every bird, everything that moves on the earth, went out by their families from the ark. Then Noah built an altar to the Lord, and took of every clean animal and of every clean bird, and offered burnt offerings on the altar. The Lord smelled the soothing aroma, and the Lord said to himself, I will never again curse the ground on account of man. The intent of man's heart is evil from his youth. And I will never again destroy every living thing as I have done. While the earth remains, seed time and harvest, and cold and heat, and summer and winter, and day and night shall not cease. We're going to begin with looking at God. Promise and providence. Again, start verse 1. It says, but God remembered Noah and all the beasts of the field. All the beasts and all the cattle that were with him in there, excuse me. When we read this, it's kind of an awkward reading, isn't it? As if God can forget, right? <laughs> Why does it say that God remembered Noah? Well, God can't forget. That's not the author's intent. Instead, the author, who we believe is Moses, is reminding us of God's covenant promise to Noah back in Genesis 6.18. And that has severe implications for everyone here today. We are only here... Look at me. We're only here because God made a promise. And he honored that promise. He's a promise maker and a promise keeper. By making a promise, God knew he would bind himself by his word to us. Because we didn't deserve to be saved. And they were only righteous, by the way, those eight people, because... They found favor from God. That was grace. There's nothing special about us that makes us worth saving, even those eight people. We all deserve to perish because of our sin. And so to bypass what His holiness demands due to our fallenness, and our, His holiness demands our death, God makes a promise by grace. That's but God remembered Noah. That is why we are here. And this promise allows God to demonstrate his providence. Now, do you know what providence is? It's the idea or the concept that God controls, cares for, and provides for his creation. What do we see God controlling in these verses, these first five verses of Genesis chapter 8? Well, he's controlling the weather, right? The wind blows. So, if you walk out of this 
building after, after the service. We'll be done at 3 o'clock today. And you feel wind. And you're going to say, well, I feel the wind or the, the wind's blowing. You Maybe it's coming from this direction and so on and so forth. Really, you know why you feel wind? Because God directed that wind. His son can say to the wind, what? Stop. Cease. He controls it. He's directing it. Okay, it, it oddly rains here a lot. And so when the rain, it's raining, who is causing that rain? Because God causes the rain what? To fall on the righteous and the unrighteous, right? So when the rain stops, as we see here, who caused it to stop? Well, the text is very clear, right? God caused the wind to pass over the earth, and he caused the water to subside. That's how he would do it. Also, the fountains of the deep and the floodgates of the sky were closed. And then, remember that the sluice gate? We talked about that. He put down the sluice gate. God caused all the water that was coming up to stop. The water came through that we believe, the water above the earth. He stopped that. The third source of water was the clouds that were now condensing and bringing down rain. He restrained that and stopped that. That's the sovereignty of God, his providence, okay? God is controlling the weather. The wind blows and the rain from above is restrained. The earth's crust, this is what happened, quite frankly, closed. He caused it to close, shutting out the water from below. The point being here, if you look at these first five verses, you want to see that God kept the promise and he clearly is in control. All right? Now, let's talk about birds. The tale of two birds. There's a reason why God sent out a raven and a dove. Okay? Now, I want you to think with me for a moment. Pretend that you are on this ark. And you've been on this ark, as we're going to find out, for 371 days. During that time, do you think you might get a little curious? And you can't look out of the ark because there's only one window and everything else is covered. And so what Noah does is he opens the window of the ark and sends out a raven. Now, why a raven? The raven was a scavenger bird that could eat almost anything, and if there was any dead flesh floating in the water or lying in the mountaintops, the raven would find it. Yes, you Auburn Riverside ravens, that is not a good mascot. Just like the library shows down there in Auburn, what's the raven eating? French fries. You see that? <laughs> so, it's a scavenger bird. This is why he sent it out. And apparently the raven didn't find some flesh because it stayed out there. It never returned. There's no mention of return to the ark. So now the raven told Noah, guess this, that there was death outside the ark. But Noah also needed to know, not only was there death out there, but, and I assumed he would think that, but there was hope that there was life out there. Because they're going to have to find some life, i.e. plants, since they were vegetarians at that time, even the animals were vegetarians, in order to eat. And while a raven was a scavenger bird that ate flesh, a dove was a bird that ate vegetation. So also, a raven could land on a floating corpse, 
dying on the flesh and moved to another corpse. But a dove is a nesting bird. It needed dry ground and vegetation to build its nest so the dove would tell them if the water had receded. And remember, of all the animals on the ark ate plants. They were not carnivores. So coming out of the ark, they would need plants to eat. And the dove returns, giving Noah the information he is seeking. Seven days later, Noah sends out the dove to see if the water had subsided. So the plants begin to surface. And this time the dove returns with a freshly picked olive leaf. And there's a reason for this. One of the trees in the world that can survive underwater is an olive tree. Did you know that? Some of you knew that, yeah. I didn't know that until I, I researched it. Yep. It can survive underwater for an extended period of time. The olive tree can. Now, and they're very hardy trees, and this fits this account very well. And this was not an olive leaf floating in the water. This was a, one that was freshly picked. This meant that the valleys and hills were exposed now, and that land was being dried. And so Noah knows the water was abating from the earth, and plants were blooming, beginning to bloom again. And seven days later, he sends out the dove, and it never returns. So those are the reasons for those birds. That's the tale of two birds. Now, let's talk about history. Because there's a lot of dates in here, and it can get confusing, and you want to know why the, the dates are in here. Well, simply this. In the 600th year of Noah, the second month, the 10th day, Noah entered the ark. In the 600th year of Noah, second month, 17th day, so seven days later, the flood began. In the 601st year, second month, 27th day, Noah exited the ark. In total, Noah and his family and all the animals and birds and beasts and everything and the creeping things in the ground were in the ark for one year in either 10 or 11 days. And so I thought this should help you if you can see this give you an idea of what life was like for them in the time frame, okay? So the flood begins, and here's the, here's the verse for it and so on. Now, this is like they've been in the ark. They were told to go in, you know, seven days earlier, but really, I think what they were doing is they were gathering all the animals. Then the Lord closes the door, because the same day, remember, the fountain of the deep burst open, the canopy is broken, so the volcanic eruptions and clouds are forming, and just this total deluge of rain and everything. And the flood begins. Now, 40 days later is when the ark is lifted off the ground. So for 40 days, they're in there, and what would they have heard? Drowning, screaming, death. If they heard some of that, too, because it's very difficult to hear during a heavy downpour, isn't it? So some of the noise would have been drowned out. I believe as well that that constant noise probably put some of the animals into hibernation. Okay, And so all this is going on in the first you know, 40 days. Now, 110 more days, for a total of 150 days, the ark eventually lands on the mountains of Ararat, and the waters have reached their highest point. Okay? And at the 150-day mark, we now know from the text and everything, we read this, that when God exercises providence and his power, and he stops the rain and the waters from rising and so on, and the waters now begin to decrease because he is 
tells the wind to start to blow. And by the way, this isn't the only time God's going to use the wind to push back waters. When we do it again. Parting the Red Sea. Remember for that day and night, the east wind came and it blew the water apart so that we, they could walk wide and it dried the ground so that they could walk through. See? So they, they, they park on the Mount Ararat. 74 days later, okay, he now can begin to see the tops of the hills rising above the waters because why would he be able to see them? God's pushing up the mountains and the water's starting to go down, okay? 40 days after that, he sends the first raven out. And it says the raven was sent out to scout the land but would fly around for the next 107 days until the land was completely dry. Seven days later, as our text says, he sends the dove out for the first time. Seven days later, the second time the dove is sent out, brings back the olive leaf. Third time he sends it, and the dove does not return. So now he knows. He waits about 30 days, 29 days. Again, the waters were dried off the land, okay? But he doesn't exit. And there's a good reason for that. Because Noah's a patient man who's walked with God, and he doesn't do anything until God tells him to do something. Then God tells him it's time to leave. And the total is 371 days, 70, 71 days, that, he's, that they are in the ark. Okay? Now, all of these dates and numbers are details. And they're recorded because of this is history. This doesn't read like myth. It's not legend or myth or folktale or fantasy. Having been in the ark for over a year, one can imagine that their food supply was probably running a little low. They must have been anxious to leave the ark, but again, Noah's obedient and a patient man, and he did not come out until God told him to come out. Now think about this. The last time Noah heard the Lord speak, what did God say to him? Get in the ark. He hears nothing that we know of for over a year and a month, and then God says, Get out of the ark. There's no explanation in between. But you know what he's doing during that time frame? He's hurrying up and waiting. You ever get a promise from God and you wait for that promise to be fulfilled? You're in that hurry up and wait stage. And so he's like, his character is being formed and his patience and faith, he's walking in faith and he's waiting and learning valuable lessons as God does his work, and he's trusting God. And then when God speaks again, he's ready to go. So he's learning to trust God, to walk by faith, to be patient, all the things that we hate to do, right? He's learning those things. God is forming his character. Noah was simply walking in obedient faith. Now let's talk about what I call the appropriate response, okay? Look at verse 18. So Noah went out, and his sons and his wife and his sons' wives with him. Every beast, every creeping thing, and every bird, everything that moves on the earth, went out by their families from the ark. Then Noah built an altar to the Lord and took of every clean animal and of every clean bird and offered burnt offerings on the altar. Now be very clear in this. When Noah and his family stepped off the ark, again, they stepped into a completely different world. 
2 Peter 3, 6 says this, through which the world at that time, referring to that first world, the first earth was destroyed, being flooded with water. That world was destroyed. It is a different world. It is the second earth. And of course, there will be a third earth when this second earth is destroyed by fire. Now, when Adam was created, and hear me on this, he stepped into a lush world conducive for thriving and teeming with mature life in animals and vegetation. Remember that? The Garden of Eden and all of that. Noah stepped into an incredibly desolate wilderness. The air, which formerly was warm and gentle because it was a, remember that water canopy that probably created a tropic-like environment around the entire globe. There were no North Pole, South Pole, and polar ice caps and stuff like that. That didn't exist. The air, which was formerly was warm and gentle, now moved in stiff and sometimes violent winds. For the first time in his life, he felt a chill on the mountain slopes. He would never have felt that before. Dark clouds were probably rolling across the sky, which his last experiences, they'd already had always been perpetually and pleasantly bright. These dark clouds seemed to threaten more rain and the recurrence of flood conditions. God had blotted out, Genesis 6, 7, all flesh that had the breath of life in them and reshaped the planet. The earth had been purged of the wicked humanity that had made its physical beauty only a mockery. But what was left, it was bleak, and barren and foreboding. And we know that because of the raven. Dr. Henry Morris speaks of these physical conditions. I want to read two paragraphs from him. He says, The oceans were much more extensive since they, were now, since they are now contained. They now contain all the waters which once were above the firmament in the subterranean reservoirs of the deep. In other words, what happened is God created all the water the second day, he separated the water, put water above and the rest of the water that surrounded the planet, and he formed that planet in the second day, and the third day and fourth day, he created the land and separated the waters and all of that. There's still this water above the planet. Where's all this water now after the flood? It's all on the earth. So how does he, what does God do? Well, he creates these deep valleys and mountains and has to now put all of the water in the planet. So all the water ever was is now here. That's what Dr. Morris is saying. It's in the subterranean reservoirs of the deep. The land areas, which were much less extensive than before the flood, with a much greater portion of the surface of the earth uninhabitable for this reason. The thermal vapor blanket was dissipated, that was that water canopy, so that strong temperature differentials were inaugurated, leading to a gradual buildup of snow and ice on the polar latitudes rendering much of the extreme northern and southern land surfaces also essentially uninhabitable. Mountain ranges uplifted after the flood emphasized the more rugged topography of the first society in a continent, with many of these regions also becoming unfit for human habitation. Winds, storms, rains, snow were possible now, thus rendering the total environment less congenial to man and animals than it had been before. 
The environment was also more hostile because of harmful radiation from space, no longer filtered out by the vapor canopy. Again, we think that the water that was above the earth shielded us, the humanity, from the sun's radiation. There had been a gradual reduction in the human longevity after the flood. Tremendous glaciers, rivers, and lakes existed for a time, with the world only gradually approaching its present state of semi-aridity. Aridity, excuse me. And that is what is known as the Ice Age, the Ice Age occurring after the flood. The crust of the Earth was in a state of general instability, reflected in recurrent volcanic and seismic activity all over the world, and continuing to some degree even to the present, obviously so. But there were other changes too, folks. Life, instead of living for hundreds of years, it's shortened, and by the time you come to uh, Jesus Christ, people are dying in their 20s. How long were they living prior to all of this? About 900 years, right? And eventually the Bible just flat out says man's life may be generally be three score and ten or 70 years. And so what a surreal experience it must have been for Noah and his family. They're excited to leave a, a cramped ark, but nervous as to they walk out into an unfamiliar world. Now, growing up, we were exposed to, as children and even adults, to pictures like this. Okay? And this is what it must have been like for Noah when he left the ark. Sunshine and a rainbow, happy animals and green grass and trees everywhere. We've seen that before, right? That didn't happen. That did not happen. Rest assured, that wasn't what they saw. When they came off the ark, there was undeniable death and desolation everywhere. There was some plant life, but it certainly wasn't extensive or lush. Remember, what happened to the plant life? It had literally been suffocated out of existence. Just like man and animals, the vegetation needed time to develop and grow. And we don't know how much that vegetation God preserved, but we can be sure it wasn't anything like the Garden of Eden because it was destroyed. It was a destroyed planet. And so when they walked off the ark, the first thing that they saw was massive death and judgment. And it is precisely because of this judgment and death and desolation that I believe no build an altar and worshiped. He offers a burnt offering, and that's significant. A burnt offering is sim symbolic of total devotion to the Lord. In Levitical law, you find that a burnt offering was an offering that was completely burned at the altar. The priest didn't eat any of it. You didn't eat any of it. It was a total devoted offering to the Lord and the Lord only. You didn't keep anything back for yourself or the priest. This is further indicated by the fact that when uh, Noah gave the offering, he took of every clean animal and of every clean bird. This was a very generous, lavish offering, burnt offering that is. So from all the available animals for that purpose, he gave sacrifice to God. 
And so it symbolized, I believe, his total devotion to the Lord. It would not be a natural response to this, you know why they, you knew why this uh, flood was coming. You experienced judgment in a way that only no one else will ever experience. And the first thing you see when you get out of this ark is massive death and judgment. I mean, bodies and bones strewn everywhere. Okay? And they offered it, I believe Noah offered that burnt offering because he recognized his need for repentance and his sinfulness. That's what a burnt offering is. It symbolized total devotion to the Lord, but also symbolized something else, a recognition of repentance for one's sinfulness and the need for a substitute sacrifice to pay the penalty for your sin. Because when they came face to face with the devastation of judgment, they had to be struck by the fact that that is essentially what they deserve too. I think that they knew it. And God only spared them. Why? Because Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. Genesis 6, 8. That's grace, folks. That's grace. Because what do we know about Noah? We're going to learn that he was a sinful person. He's fallen. And so Noah offers these sacrifices and becomes the first priest in the new world. And probably because of his integrity and worship, the recognition of his sinfulness and the expression of true repentance that God responded the way he did. And let's talk about the second promise. This is important. Verse 21, the Lord smelled the soothing aroma. The Lord said to himself, I will never again curse the ground on account of man. For the intent of man's heart is evil from his youth. And I will never again destroy every living thing as I have done. While the earth remains, seed time and harvest, in cold and heat, in summer and winter, in day and night, shall not cease. Let me just say this to start off with. Moses is using what is called anthropomorphism. God doesn't have a nose and smell because God is what? Spirit. It's an anthropomorphic way of saying that the sacrifice pleased God. And God was pleased with the heart of the worshiper. So it's an expression of divine favor. And as a result of Noah's burnt offering, God in essence says, I'm not going to do, going to do two things again. Curse the ground and make man's life harder than, like he did in Genesis 3. And secondly, destroy everything, every living thing, that is, with water. The worship of Noah... His repentant, sacrificial burnt offering brings about a response from God, and it's as if almost that Noah is like an intercessor praying for us. And God makes this promise with himself, with the full knowledge that the intent of man's heart is evil from his youth. Think about that. So from this moment on in history, from that response of Noah to what he sees when he steps off the ark, we are now in what we call an age of grace. What do I mean by an age of grace? Well, for the first 1,656 years of mankind's existence in that first society, God tolerated sin. But eventually he ran out of patience 
Then comes a worldwide flood and the destruction of humanity. Here we are over 4,500 years later. Why have we survived? I mean, we were as bad as that first society after 1,500 years. Well, the answer is because God, in response to the repentance and the sacrifice of Noah, said, I won't ever do this again. So you are here, we're all here, because of Noah and the grace of God. Again, the Lord said it to himself. This isn't a covenant or a pact that he made with Noah. This is one that he made with himself. And do you know what that means? Well, I'm going to let the Apostle Paul answer this from a sermon on Mars Hill. This is what it means. Therefore, having overlooked the times of ignorance, what are the times of ignorance? Well, times refers to a time. So when are the times of ignorance? Right now. There was a judgment with after 656 years. 4,500 years later, this is the time of what? Ignorance. He is overlooking that. We're in the age of grace. We deserve to be destroyed just like that first society. Right? So what's God doing now in this time? He is now declaring to men that all people everywhere should repent. Who repented to initiate this time of ignorance? Noah did. Watch, because he has fixed a day in which he will judge the world in righteousness through a man whom he has appointed, having first proof to all men by raising from the dead. There's another day coming, another time of worldwide judgment, and we will come at his second coming. But there's a fixed day, okay? So God determined to overlook the coming times of ignorance, God is determined to withhold future destruction. This is an amazing commitment from God, isn't it? That would be a time for you to say amen and shout and clap and say, yeah, because you're only here because of this, folks. Do you understand? Are you following me? We're living in an age of grace. Because of this, we need to heed Paul's words to the Corinthians. What does he say? Don't receive God's grace in vain, because now is what? It's a time of his favor. Now is the day of salvation. Now you can still be saved. There will come a time when you can't be saved anymore. And what comes after that time? Judgment. After 120 years, what happened? For that first society, it was over. They didn't all die immediately. They eventually slowly drowned. There's nothing they could do. They could never be saved. We're in the time when the rain first started. We're in the time of favor still. So we need to let other people know this, right? Don't receive God's grace in vain. You see, here's the point. The flood, it didn't remove fallenness from the world. Notice family were fallen, sinful creatures. They were going to re reproduce what? Fallen, sinful creatures. 
So God is not saying, I'm removing sin, judgment, wrath, cataclysm, cause and effect, etc. He is not saying, I'm initiating an age of tolerance either. There will be sin and judgment and death and hell. But there won't be universal destruction at once. People still need to hear the message of the gospel during this age of grace. God is patient. Even though sinners deserve immediate judgment, God treats them with grace, and he treats us with grace. It's the only reason why we're here. God makes the sun rise and fall and set on the just and the unjust. He makes the rain to fall on the just and the unjust. It really is an amazing grace. And sinners today have to be as bad or as worse than the sinners were in that first society in the day of the flood, right? And how do we know that? Because God said, Genesis 8, 21, the intent of man's heart is evil from his youth. He said that before the first society. He said it to us in advance. Now, it's your intent. This is who you are. But in spite of our sin, God says, I'm not going to do this. I'm not going to exercise this kind of, of judgment again. So God is remarkably gracious and patient, again, as Romans 2, 4 says. Remember this? Do you think lightly of the riches of his kindness and the tolerance and patience? That's where we are right now, his tolerance and patience. Not knowing that it's this kindness that is to lead you to repentance. Because it was repentance and that burnt offering that lit and inaugurated and started this age of grace that we now benefit from. And even in the midst of such terrible judgment as a flood, we always need to remember this about God too. He doesn't desire that any person perish. But all come to repentance. He is patient with us. So there is still sin, there's still divine judgment, there's still death, and there's still hell. But the planet just keeps going and going and going along because God is gracious and patient with sinners. Well, how long is this going to last? Well, look at Genesis 8, 22, the last verse. While the earth remains, seed time and harvest and cold and heat and summer and winter and day and night shall not cease. You see that? The next judgment will be the destruction of the planet at his second coming. Until then, what will happen? Well, life will continue. In other words, what he is saying here is there are always going to be natural resources such as food and water. That's the seed time and harvest. There will always be warm and cool temperatures. There will always be seasons and there will always be days and nights. Well, why? Because God decreed it. He said it would be. It's his promise to us. The earth will not be destroyed by a meteor. The earth will not fly out of orbit. And we're all not going to die from global warming. The idea that the planet will be destroyed by global warming is a nearly universal accepted doctrine by the worldwide population. I mean, to the Sunday school, I'll do the exercise again here. How many of you have ever given serious thought to the world being destroyed by a meteor? Raise your hand. 
How many of you given serious thought that the world's going to be destroyed by just going out of orbit? But how many of you have given some serious thought to the fact that the world will be destroyed through global warming? If you want to be honest, raise your hands. A lot of you will. Well, why do you think that? Because you have been indoctrinated over and relentlessly over and over again that the world will be destroyed through global warming. Right? The climate change alarmists make bold predictions to elicit fear and compliance to their beliefs. Now, I want you to think, one of my favorite romantic comedies, it's actually a political romantic comedy, the 1995 movie, The American President. Who's seen that movie? Okay, a lot of you have. Okay, starring Michael Douglas and Annette Benning, written by Aaron Sorkin, a liberal, and Rob Reiner, liberal, and directed by the liberal Rob Reiner. Now, Rob Reiner is a well-known liberal and global warming advocate. Listen to the claims Reiner makes about global warming from this 1995 movie. So that's almost 30 years ago. I'm getting old. <laughs> okay? And that Bain plays a political strategist working for an environmental company, and the president is Michael Douglas, and again, a relationship. But you hear some of the things that, 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 that she is saying, but really, it's the ideology of a climate change these, these, in global warming. First thing said this, the burning of fossil fuels is most responsible for global warming and that a 20% reduction is necessary first step toward arresting the catastrophic greenhouse effect. It's catastrophic. What is by definition catastrophic or catastrophism? The creation of the world, a worldwide flood or a nuclear war that would end everything, right? It destroys everything. So they're saying that fossil fuels are eventually are going to have a destroy the planet completely. Okay? Second statement. Global warming is a calamity. The effects which will only be second to nuclear war. So now they're putting global warming on the level of nuclear war. If a nuclear war were to happen, what would happen? It's all over. So they're saying that it's going to Destroy everything. Third statement, think like a father for a second. Wouldn't you like your kids to be able to take a deep breath when they're 30? <laughs> that was 1995. Do I think that two years from now, myself and my kids will be able to take a deep breath? Last statement, 10 years from now, any car with an internal combustion engine is going to be considered a collector's item. That was in 2005, okay? So this agenda is being pushed to this movie, and, and if you're smart enough, you, you can pick up on it. But these are the claims that they make, okay? Not one of these claims are accurate or has come true. Why? What has God declared? A regular routine. Sowing and reaping, cold in the winter, wet in the spring, warm in the summer, cool in the fall, days and nights, that will not change as long as the planet is here. And we have God's word on that. Okay? And they aren't going to want to tell you that what Noah came up with a few months ago, that the, there's been a six-year cooling, 
around the globe. Did you see that? I think I mentioned that to you. The opposite of what global warming is. Now, some of they can twist it and say, well, that's just further sign that the planet is warming. But how is it getting colder, meaning it's getting warmer? Okay? So you have all of that, okay? And my point being is that there's Hollywood, and it's a fun movie to watch, you know, um, Armageddon, remember that? The meteor is going to destroy the planet, all of that. So I love those movies. Okay, they're entertaining, but it's, it's not going to happen. You're going to be able to go to sleep at night, and when you wake up tomorrow, it will be, it'll be light. It'll be warmer in the day, and it'll get cooler at night. And if it's Washington, it's going to rain all day. But you get the whole idea, right? Right? Have you ever been out of food or water? No. Has there ever not been a fall or a winter or a spring? No. Now, folks, this is the way it is. Why? Because God said it. But why did God say it? Because of what Noah did. Remember? That sacrifice. Humility, repentance. You follow me? Yeah, God had a plan, but in response, the text tells us to what Noah did and what he saw, and how it was in a, 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 it, you know, it's, it's written here for us for a reason. I want you to see that. This is why we're here, okay? And this is why we're going to get this last song right. Isn't that right, Frank? <laughs> we got the last song ready to go? Okay. I gotta, you got to get Frank a break, okay, because he, he's here at 8.30, and he's doing all this stuff, and sometimes David Doyle's not here to make it, and my son David just is lazy and sleeps in and comes in at 9.29, or 10.29, and so, yeah. <laughs> 10.28 today, okay, and so he's doing a whole lot, and, and, and making sure I know what to do with my technology and stuff like that, so, all right? Any questions about the sermon real quick? Okay, you guys learn a lot? Good. There's a lot that I learned. Okay. Thanks for being patient with me. So, I'll send the notes out to you guys. All right. Question. Four months ago, you want me to remember a sermon from four months ago? That's what Peter says. Yeah. Well, God has made this plant to where that there's it's an, an atomic war can happen the way the elements are created that it can just become a literal fireball and explode, which we think is probably what will happen, and then the new heavens and the third earth, the new heavens and new earth will, will come down, okay, and so that's what will happen. So some some died and some some got caught in the mudslides and sediment in their movements. Some didn't. That's why we have the, the whales fossils up in the top of mountains. Because they were caught in that mudslide diet and they were pushed up. Okay? All right, let's stand. We'll close with a shorter version, not the nine-minute version, of We Exalt Thee. Father, thank you for this time this morning. Thank you for everyone's patience. And may you been hope you've been glorified and exalted in all this, Father. That's what it's all about. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.